Among similarly qualified faculty, women who never married earn higher incomes than men who never married. What does that mean? There were other complex factors at play. First of all, what is the preferences? Like men and women aren't choosing, let's say, science, technology, engineering, medicine with equal frequency, just whether you like it or not. And that's true even in the most egalitarian societies, even in Scandinavia. The dimorphism or the difference between the choices goes up. That's point number one. And point number two, because they have different life experiences, and we should not be ashamed. We should be proud that women bear children. Mm -hmm. They may spend less time in the workforce, have less time to build up their skills. This is a great thing. This is the specialization, yes. the division of labor. But again, a very naive statistic is saying, like, wait a minute, why are the men being paid more than the women? Well, it turns out it has nothing to do with gender. And if you take uh, marriage and children out of the equation, women get paid more than men. Right. I mean, this is awesome. This is so yeah. cool. Like it, And it means, you know, the sad thing and why Marxists don't like these conclusions is that it means we don't live in a dastardly evil society mm. dominated by, by evil people who are rigging the system. And the problem, the reason people fear that conclusion is it means that they're responsible for themselves and they actually yeah. can. Right. There are a lot of people who are most intimidated by the idea that they can control their own destiny to some extent. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them. As again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized U.S. dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res three-inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. 
Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility, and it's a really a, a brand new UI UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Anish Carve, welcome back to the What Is Money show. Thank you for having me. Great to have you again. Uh, we're going to continue into Thomas Sowell's book, Discrimination and Disparities. This time, jumping into chapter four, which is titled The World of Numbers. And um, yeah, this was quite an eye-opener for me, just how Soul does a great job of getting beneath the surface of these... Um, hmm false categorizations perhaps we're talking about like lumping people together in one group called the rich or one group called the poor or the top one percent and it fails to account for the transients in these groups or categories um so with that i'll just start by reading an excerpt here on page 89 uh and this was in regard to an issue where there was a public perception that white mortgage lenders were discriminating against black mortgage borrowers and souls just kind of going through this false labeling and how it was used to basically um, lead to this political uproar but even though it wasn't a real thing so now this is towards the end of, of that spiel he writes that while the omitted statistics would have undermined the prevailing preconception that white lenders were biased against black applicants. That preconception at least seemed plausible, even if it failed to stand up under closer scrutiny. But the idea is the idea that white lenders would also be discriminating against white applicants and in favor of Asian applicants lacked even plausibility. What was equally implausible was that black owned banks were discriminating against black applicants. But in fact, Black-owned banks turned down more Black applicants for home mortgage loans at a higher rate than did white-owned banks. Um, so my general understanding here was that there was a statistic cited that you know Black applicants were being denied at a rate, I think it was like 25%, where white applicants were only being denied, or maybe it was 50%, whereas white applicants were being denied at a rate of 25%. So I was like, ah, there's clearly racial... Uh, raci racism going on here, right? But it failed, I guess he called this an error of omission, I think, or maybe we didn't get to that part yet, failed to account for the fact that uh, Asian American applicants were being approved at twice the rate of white applicants. And then as he said in this uh, little excerpt here, that it was also black owned banks even discriminate, quote unquote, discriminating against black applicants. So he just kind of dispelled this whole notion uh, I guess largely dispelled the notion that racism was an an element of this uh, market process. What are your? How did you interpret this, and what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, Sol opens this chapter with Twain's famous statement: "There are three kinds of lies: lies, damn lies, and statistics." <laughs> and I think it's really important for us to connect for the listeners 
how these particular statistics relate to central planning and relate to central banking. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to come right back around and I'll talk about these specific mortgage statistics in just a minute. But I think this big picture is extraordinarily important. And we had people in the YouTube comments section being like, oh, hey, what does this have to do with economics and money? And some people were smart enough to answer twofold. Like, number one, Seoul is probably the greatest living economist. Mm-hmm. Number two, this has everything to do with the core of central planning and the core of central banking, and that is redistribution. Mm-hmm. So every government action, for the most part, at least statist or authoritarian actions, are all about how we redistribute resources. Mm-hmm. And economics, as we know, is the study of how we distribute, not redistribute, resources with alternative uses that are scarce. And so the key thing, what Sol is really attacking here, is he is attacking the fundamental argument that is used by statists and authoritarians to redistribute the money and the resources in a society. And so what I really took from, and it's very, in his erudition, Sol is very careful to give people thinking patterns and patterns with which they can be better economic thinkers. Mm-hmm. And he's very similar to Mises in this regard, is that both these economists, both Sol and Mises are asking people, wait a second, take a moment, pause and think about what you're consuming. And to get to your point, Sol in this chapter, The World of Numbers, he talks about errors of commission and errors of omission. And the errors of omission are things that are deliberately left out to support a narrative. And the errors of commission are things that are done improperly. And I want to give examples of each one of those. So in the mortgage example that you just gave, it was omitted for, to fuel a specific political narrative for central planning and redistribution. The fact that Asian Americans were accepted at twice the rate of white Americans for mortgages was omitted very conveniently because it didn't fit the narrative. The facts didn't fit the narrative and therefore those facts were omitted. Mm -hmm. And then on the commission side of things, and we'll get deep into this because it's really important. Many times you'll see even vaunted economic institutions like Princeton relying on survey data for, for economic revealed behavior. And so what Sowell says is both these errors of omission and commission are distracting the mind from what the central point at hand is and lead to false redistributions. Hmm. And I'm going to, I think we've all heard of this concept of the Gini coefficient. It gets talked about a lot. Mm -hmm. And Sowell in this chapter actually talks about, I think it's like capital in the 20, Piketty's famous thesis uh, and book. Uh, which funnily enough was actually one of the most unread books of that year of 2016. So a lot of people talked about this book, but the Kindle statistics are known and people read on average like 10% of this book. It's funny. So the the reading of the classic work on inequality was very unequally read, put it that way. <laughs> what is the key point here is that the idea is that that is advanced toward us is that, well, if we had a, a Gini coefficient of zero, that wealth would be perfectly evenly distributed. And what Seoul is showing in this work in discrimination and disparities is that neither by logic, nor by history, nor by empirical evidence, nor by nature, is anything anywhere ever fully equally distributed. Mm -hmm. And the real, I guess, where I would say what this mortgage example really illustrated to me was how numbers are used. I call it math washing. Mm -hmm. And whoever they are, in the name of a new policy, or in the name of a new redistributive, or let's say a market interference, in the name of market intervention, they throw up numbers to math wash things so that people are like, wow, those are terrible statistics. But now every discriminating listener needs to ask themselves, have I heard everything 
And is this actually the right method? Is there an error of omission or an error of commission here? Yeah, it's wonderfully said. Um, and I, we've hammered this on this series so far, but equal outcomes are just the most unnatural thing imaginable. Like you don't see it anywhere in nature or in human civilization um, to try and like force function that it just creates so many disastrous outcomes. Um, so he goes on, I'm on page 91 now. And this other, there's a really good point here that when using household income data rather than individual income data, Oof. it's like obfuscating the true economic circumstances faced by individuals. Like it gives you this wiggle room, right. To kind of play with the statistics to support the narrative. And it's, you're not grounding out in the reality of acting individuals in the world, right? That's what your statistics should always sort of ground out. And otherwise yes. you've got this weird wiggle room where people can insert the political uh, obfuscations and agenda and whatnot. So he wrote that I'm on page 91. If for example, each of the two tenants had an income of $20,000 a year initially, and later both reach an income of $30,000 a year leading to each living in a separate apartment afterwards, that will mean a fall in household income for these individuals from 40,000 a year to 30,000 a year. There will now be two low-income households instead of one, and each household will be poorer than, than the one they replaced. Again, again, a rise in individual income can be reflected statistically as a fall in household income. Since most income is paid to individuals rather than to households, an individual always means one person while household can mean any changeable number of persons, why would household income statistics be used so often instead of individual income statistics? I mean, it's so obvious in a way, but it's easy to not think critically when you just hear, and I, I'm guilty of this as well, I've heard household income statistics in regards to how quantitative easing was, I think the st statistic I cited previously was the COVID printing was like, uh, came out to like $46,000 per U.S. household. And then each U.S. household received a check for say $3,500, $4,000. And the gap there was obviously just, you know, crony spending, crony um, went to statist and, and Wall Street and whatnot. Okay, that sounds good. Sounds like it supports a narrative that I'm espousing that printing money is bad, which I would still stand by. But it, it makes more sense, I think, to go to the individual statistics. So you get the the highest resolution That's right. depiction of the matter. Yeah, and this this reminds me a lot of, of some of the work we've done in Austrian economics in that hard definitions are infinitely preferable to flexible ones. Mm -hmm. And that's really what Sol is saying here is that household income doesn't have a definition. Therefore, it can be hammered to support whatever narrative the author chooses to support with it. Whereas per capita income is a fixed thing. It has a fixed definition. Yes. And I think Sol's point from a mathematical standpoint is that the size of a household is always changing. And you can mm -hmm. have cases, the quote where you just made, where the individual's income goes up. So individuals are getting richer, but the household appears to get poorer because the household got smaller and therefore the household income went right. down. Right. So yeah. this is just playing with the denominator. Yeah. And I think this is one of the main chapter, one of the main themes we're going to treat in this chapter is that politicians will obsess 
over the fate of abstract categories more than they do over the fate of flesh and blood human beings. Mm. And that is exactly the sleight of hand that is being committed in front of our faces that when we talk about household income, household income is going down, household income is going up, or other narratives we're going to get to, like, oh, the upper 1% of people retained some enormous lion's share of the income. Guess what? That's not the same people over time. The household isn't even the same size over time. So this is very much about, and this is, I think, a general trend in Austrian and libertarian economics and conservative economics, is that are we actually using our definitions properly? And here's a clear example where household income should not be trusted by anyone because it's generally used to promote a narrative because it's a known misleading number. Mm-hmm. And we just he just given in a very clear example where individual wealth, what we want, goes up, but household income goes down. And you know what this really comes down to, Robert, is is this is a very collectivist tendency to apply a label to a group of people, assume they're homogenous, and then make statements out of them. Mm -hmm. For example, we owe it to ourselves. Well, no, that's not actually what you're saying. You're robbing Peter from 1970 to pay Paul of 1950 or however you want to look at that. Mm -hmm. So we got to be precise with our language. And that's the economic thinking tool that Sol is giving us here. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's a great point. You know, this, and just to reiterate what he's saying here, per capita income went up, but by reporting it because they split into two households, reporting it in the metric of households actually shows a decline, right? So it's obfuscating the truth that economic prosperity went up by, by denominating it in households rather than individuals. And that's the key point, right? It's, this is obviously related to money as well, that you're, you have this flexible denominator and there's, yes. there's uncertainty in the denominator. So you're not getting, this is what is a Wittenstein's ruler. If you use a ruler to measure right. a table, but you can't trust the constancy of the ruler, you're not sure if you're measuring the ruler or the table. That you right. need a, a fixed unit of, uh, or constant unit of measurement to compare different things. And think about how this error is introduced. Uh, there's a White House staffer somewhere, not a White House staffer, there's a staffer somewhere who works for some congressperson. They know what the speech is supposed to say is that, mm-hmm. you know, people are getting poorer over time. And now they have now in some Excel, Excel spreadsheet somewhere, they have to choose between the per capita income or household income, and they mm-hmm. choose the one that suits the narrative. And everyone is guilty of this. And Sol is really just giving us the thinking tools with which to see this better. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great transition to uh, this next section he has on time and turnover. I And I absolutely love this because I think one of the prevalent discussions of our time is that, hey, we've got all these different income strata. They're A, very unequal. We're going to debunk that idea. Well, they're much less unequal than the numbers would make you think. And Mm -hmm. B, the categories are highly dynamic. Mm -hmm. And that is the very deep point that I want to make for this entire chapter is that income inequality, income mobility, and opportunity are actually all the same thing. Mm -hmm. And if we had a Gini coefficient of zero, everyone would have the same income and you would never be able to improve your lot in life. Yeah. And so this is, again, relating the work of Hayek to the soul. It was like Hayek had the fatal conceit, which is that order always comes from central planning. Mm-hmm. And soul has the invincible fallacy, which is that wherever there is order doesn't necessarily mean it came from discrimination. Mm-hmm. So he goes into this really interesting time and turnover. So he goes into a University of Michigan study. So he says, working Americans from 75 to 91, from 1975 to 1991, found that 95% of the people initially in the bottom 20% were no longer there at the end of that period. Moreover, 29% of those initially in the 
in the bottom quintile rose all the way to the top quintile, while only 5% still remained in the bottom 20%. Mm. There's a sermon in that sentence. And so I think the first point is that there's no such thing when we talk, and Sol goes into this, and we'll get to those quotes. The upper 1% or the 0.1% or 0.01% are turning over faster amongst one another than anyone else in the economy. They're turning over at the fastest rate. Mm. Therefore, the political fallacy here is saying the top 1% as if it's the same person or the top 20% as if it's the same person. They're Mm. not the same people. And watch this. America has so much income mobility that if you're in the bottom fifth, the lowest 20% of earners, 30%, 29% of those people will at some point in their life be in the top category. So the way to think about this is not that there's a top category, which is dominating everybody. It's the same people. After Mm. 10 years, one in three people, roughly from the lowest category, will dip into the highest category. And guess what that means? Income redistribution. It's literally happening. It's happening because of what we call income inequality, and it's being phrased the opposite. Mm. And uh, yeah, I want to let you jump in there, but then I want to do this NYT quote because it's just a zinger. Yeah, I I think, I mean, you just can't emphasize the importance of this enough that like it's in the word rationality, right? We're actually trying to use ratios to compare things. But if that denominator is soft, right, or changeable, then all of a sudden it's very difficult to have rational conversation because what I say is household income in one moment is different. There's a different unit called household in the next moment. Whereas if we use something like per capita income or per capita assets or debt or whatever we're measuring, we're using the individual as the denominator. Yes. And that's also in the word, right? The individual is indivisible. So it's the right constant unit of measurement uh, when we're talking about things economic. And if you're using household statistics or other these other useful fictions, which can be useful uh, and just kind of parlance, but when you get into the mathematics of it, you really need to get to the the lowest common denominator, I guess would be what we're, we're searching for here in the individual. That's right. And that is necessary to have rational discourse about these topics. Uh, it's necessary that we use the right ratios, right? Right numerators, right denominators. Man, our, some of the, the work that we did on Mises is just flooding back to me now. And essentially money is the denominator that everyone uses as a common mm-hmm. frame of reference. And we talked about this example that if you had people constructing a building and everybody had a slightly different definition of a meter, that building wouldn't exactly. stand more than two or three meters tall. Right. So we have a universal denominator, something like a Bitcoin that allows us to project and build much more stable and efficient and correct economic structures, right? So as yeah. we do more complex engineering, more complex creation, you know, a one millimeter error doesn't matter, for instance, in uh, let's say a teacup, boy, it matters a lot in the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. And the, that is Mises' point, is that computation demands units, and there's no exchange, there's no accurate economic calculation if people aren't talking about the same thing. That's right. And the, Sol hits that again here. He says, thus, a New York Times essay in 2017 referred to this favored fifth at the top of the income distribution as having collected, since 1979, a far greater amount of income than others, And this can only be called economic illiteracy on the part of the times. What is the reason? This is a roughly like a 20, 30 year span here. Uh, Let's see, let's do the math. Yeah, actually it's almost a 40 year span. What does that mean? It's not the same people. 
So the fact that the upper fifth is earning a certain amount during a certain amount of time actually means when you look at the totality, again, this is about mm-hmm. omission. When you look at the totality, it actually means that lots of people were dipping into the highest, the upper range of income. Yes. And so, and you know, this is an amazing, this is really Marxism at play because it's an attempt to induce class warfare and say, mm-hmm. hey, wait a minute. There's all these people at the top who are just there and they're stuck and they're rigging the system. Mm-hmm. And nothing could be further from the truth because those people, they're not equal to themselves on the next right. year. And the more accurate picture of their income may be that, you know, people have these uneven outcomes as we mm-hmm. see in random and natural processes. People have these uneven outcomes. They dip, they do a million dollars one year and then don't earn anything for the next 10 years. Yeah. And in actual fact, and the inequality is very low, they're, you know, let's say maybe earning 100K a year, Right. So there's all different ways to kind of look at and slice these numbers. And again, it's incumbent upon us to be accurate and think about what is actually being said. And the reason just to tie tie up the point on Marxism, again, they're trying to say that there's this fixed class of people and that is empirically not true. There's no fixed class of people here that are are lording it over the rest. Oh, sorry, last point because it's too great and I'll, I'll find the quote. Sowell says there's this idea that politicians like that the system is rigged. And then he's like, well... If the upper 1% or upper 20% are turning over <laughs> faster than the rest of the economy, that's the stupidest job of rigging that that I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah, just to hit that point, um, I don't think we hit this excerpt yet, so I'll read it real quick. The turnover rate among people in the highest income brackets is even greater than that of the population in general. Fewer than half of those Americans who were in the much-discussed top 1% in income in 1996 we're still there in 2005. Although people in that bracket have been referred to as the best off one in 100, that is true only as of a given instant. Over the course of a lifetime, the proportion of people in that bracket is one in nine, since 11% of Americans are in that bracket at some point in their lives. People initially in the top 100th of 1% had an even faster turnover and those with the 400 highest incomes in the country turned over fastest of all. So there's just this reality, and this is fundamental. Again, classes and categories, as you said earlier, are dynamic, not static. There is this intercategorical transience that's being completely obfuscated when we talk in terms of the top 1% or households or whatever right. your, your grouping is. You're completely glossing over that transients between categories that's happening at the individual level. And so you can just demonize the 1% forever, not seeing that the 1% is changing all the time. And I, you know, this is so simple, but yet I I feel like most people fall for it. Most people are just hook, line and sinker. The top 1% is the problem. And Sol kills this. He says, for most Americans and other quintiles to envy or resent those in the top quintile would mean envying or resenting themselves as they will be in later years. Mm-hmm. And by and if we listen to the false political and economic arguments that we need to eliminate this upper class, what you're doing is you're actually eliminating, this is the great honor, you're eliminating income redistribution because there's a very high probability that you will be in that or that people who need that, they who need more income, who are in the lower, the lower quintiles right now will be there. And what Sol says, at some point between the ages of 25 and 60, over three quarters of the population will find themselves in the top 20% of the income distribution. Yeah. Yeah, it's perfectly said. And I guess the real, I mean, 
my opinion would be that the problem is when people reach those high income categories through non-consensual exchange, right? Like we've, we've probably all seen Nancy Pelosi portfolio tracker on Twitter or you know, like, she's good. Yeah, she's really good, <laughs> but she's adding no value to the real economy, right? It's just extractive. It's just rent seeking. Um, that seems to be much more I'm, problematic when you promote non-productive people to the upper echelons of income and, and ownership. Yeah. I mean, there's, I know I want to make sure I don't commit an error of omission here, but the numbers, just so that people know for Nancy closely are roughly that on a $200,000 per year salary, she's been able to accumulate a net worth of something like 140 or $150 million. I mean, she's either the greatest investor of all time, or it's it's entirely possible. Like, I think this is true for John Kerry that he married into wealth. So, like, I don't know. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm not necessarily making the argument for graft or corruption. But wow, like, what's going on there? And yeah. it is an, it's a classic example of where the narrative that is pursued and given by a certain set of people is completely opposite from how they actually live their lives. Mm-hmm. And as you know, again. I think having multiple houses and multiple streams of income and being financially stable is a great thing. But the, you know, perhaps the leftmost American politician, Bernie Sanders, as we know, is a millionaire because of capitalism. He wrote a book about his political career, career, hasn't had a real job since he was something like 20 or 30, has only been working for the American people and has multiple houses. Mm -hmm. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is that this is the difference between survey data and revealed preference or what people mm-hmm. say and the real world. And, you know, in one sentence, that is what soul is doing in discrimination and disparities. He's like, Hey, there's all these beautiful social visions. There's all these ways you can twist statistics. But when you actually look at the fate of individuals, which as you just pointed out, is the only thing that matters. The fate of abstract categories is irrelevant, especially mm-hmm. because people don't even stay in those categories. Less than 1% of the population total stays in the lowest category. So what he's really showing us here is that the stated intentions, this is what this is about. This is exactly like the fallacy of central planning. Mm -hmm. It's the stated intention and the actual outcome not only may be disjoint, they might be total opposites and often are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What what was it he called that? It was uh, revealed preferences versus stated preferences. Exactly. And that is the fundamental thing here, right? As we have... uh, political insiders, right, stating certain preferences that seem to align with the preferences right. of their voting base or their constituents, but the statement of the preference is not precise enough, right? They're using the 1% or the households or whatever it may be. Um, and it just introduces that opportunity to hide your revealed preferences behind stated preferences. I mean, it's a very... It's a very semantic game that's being played. It's it's deeply dishonest. And, and the dishonesty is not just the human level dishonesty. It's our dishonesty with ourselves that mm. actions don't speak louder than words. Mm. right? And, and what Sol is really saying, what Mises was saying is that people can talk all day long, but the actual incentive structure mm-hmm. may be something that is vastly different than what is reported. And we'll get into this later in the chapter. I'll just give one example from my my own knowledge, and that is that, you know, this was so talking about survey data being unreliable and revealed preference, what people actually do being reliable. That Sony did some kind of focus group, and they're like, hey, you know, what what should we right now? All of our all of the stereos that we we have are we sell are black, 
And should we make a yellow one? And like something like six out of seven people were like, a yellow one would be so cool. You should do that. Right. Yeah. And then at the end of the, at the end of that focus group, they, they said, Hey, you can have anything you want, a black or a yellow radio for free. And then like, I think six out of seven people took the black radio. Right. Yeah. So what does that mean? Is that, and you know, the same example is given here is that uh, for instance, in the South, church attendance is self-reported to be like 80%. The revealed preference is like less than 50%. Right. So this is what economics is all about, is that what people say they're going to do, what central planners say the effect of a policy is going to be, is very different from what happens. Again, think about Cobra laws. We've talked about those before. Very much the opposite. It's oftentimes the opposite of what happens in the real world. And this is where the crime of statism comes really to bear. We have things like the Patriot Act, which is actually should be called the Despot Act because it's, you know, wiretapping, it's suspending habeas corpus. There's any any number of things in there. Any in any case. Yeah. So I think this paying attention to this difference between reality and rhetoric. There, yes. that's a very succinct way of saying it. And Sol is very uses his very fine mind to show to dissect rhetoric and be like, ah, the reality is rather different than the rhetoric. Yeah, and it's very tricky, very pernicious because the rhetoric tends to be more emotionally compelling. The reality is a bit more That's right. cold, clinical, precise engineering language. You really have to think about definitions of terms, you know, constancy of of metrics across different uh, evaluations. And so I, I keep just, to, and, and this is, I think there's a connection here, I, at least structurally, if not um, causally, but when we talk about printing money being a problem, right? As Mises says, money is that through which we express the pricing. The pricing system is expressed. So we're taking exchange ratios and communicating them yeah. in a common denominator of money. That's right. When you start to debase that money, you get all these confusing effects inside of the market, right? Price signal distortion, capital misallocation, exacerbating, cycle. exacerbating the boom and bust business cycle. And we're saying, again, structurally somewhat the same thing here, that if we speak in terms of changeable categories or classes, we're distorting our ability to have like authentic truth-seeking dialogue. We're engaging in some kind of collective self-deception, if you will. That's right. You know, even the way you think, if you think in these terms, in terms of households instead of individuals, like you're going to confuse yourself. So it's... it's, um, I don't know. It seems very pernicious that we have to get so hard on these definitions, but uh, the majority of people, maybe you don't have an appreciation for how important that is because it's not so emotionally compelling to tell people, Hey, we have to get super precise on our definitions before we continue this conversation. It's much easier to say, ah, down with the 1% and like mobilize this, this fervor. Well, populists, uh, this is an an unpopular opinion, but I think true analysis that populists have the easiest job in the world. They tell people what they want to hear, that someone else Mm -hmm. is responsible for your problems. (laughs) And there's also, I think what you were getting to, Robert, is that there's a great intellectual burden in having to like, what are we all supposed to do? Like spend 10 hours a day reading economics? Like, and there is an answer to this, by the way. And, And that is that we have to dissect things to the matter of principle. 
you don't have to memorize mm -hmm. a lot of economic facts. You do need to know that there is a conflict of interest when a politician makes a numerical argument. And mm -hmm. it, I, actually, that takes me right to capital gains. And I want to want to mm -hmm. pull that in here because this is another one that's used to distort income inequality, mm -hmm. it, which is, again, the pretense for redistribution. While annual income statistics for individuals avoid some of the problems of household income statistics, this is continuing down this path. Both of these sets of statistics count as income one annual wages, salaries, and other incomes earned and paid during the same year, and two, income from capital gains accrued over some previous span of years and then turned into cash income during a given year. Highly deceptive. Let's take an example. Mm. An individual, let's say you're a farmer. You, you don't even have what we would call a white-collar job. And let's say that uh, you sell your farm one year for a million dollars. Let's say after having put half a million dollars into it. You suddenly jump into the upper 1% or whatever echelon you're going to be in economically. Mm -hmm. But that $1 million reflects 10 years of improvements, and you're not going to get it again. So the amortized value of this capital gains windfall is actually more like, I'm just using round numbers, this farmer making 100 k per year. Mm -hmm. And so what is the key thing here is that here again, capital gains are lumped in with annual wages and salaries. And so when we talk about how much people are earning, it's not even the same source of earning. And by the way, this is exactly why people at the highest levels, highest income levels are turning over the fastest. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if you earn, let's say, let's say your income was 100K, it's very likely to be through salary. If your income was $10 million, it's likely due to capital gains. And guess what? Those people aren't going to stay there. And the differences between the income categories, when you actually look at individuals, that in, that individual's income is going to revert to the mean over time. Mm -hmm. And therefore, Sol gives us an example. You can say, if you just look at the, in, the abstract income categories, you can say, well, there's a tenfold disparity between you know the upper 1% and the lower 10%. But if you actually look at individuals, it's more like fourfold because that's not a fixed set of people who stay up here. Right. And when the capital gains get divided, again, here's these tricky denominators. When the capital gains get divided by how many years it took to earn it or how many years that income is going to have to last you, things normalize out. And the, and, and the economy isn't nearly as unequal as people who are lumping capital gains and salaries together would have you believe. Yes. No, that's a great point. I, the, uh, I guess it's improperly zeroing in on the cash the cashing out of the investment, right? As the, the event of realization, obviously that's when you realize the gains, but the actual substance of that transaction is accruing over 10, 20 years, however long it took you to build, hold the farm, you know, et cetera. Yes. So it's this, this kind of like active versus passive reality of income, right? Maybe you have a job you're actually working on, but it's only accruing you a small bit over time and then you get That's it right. all in one big chunk so that it's it's another distorted case of distorted view oh man there's just so much rich fertile ground for thought here so the first is is that one of the things that scares central planners about the free market is this volatility mm -hmm. and i want to do a thought experiment with you so if i would you like it robert if i took the volatility out of bitcoin of course not <laughs> it doesn't no, work because <laughs> the returns would would be fixed to some horrible number right and yeah. so this is a key idea is central planners fear volatility because they don't understand it and it mm -hmm. lies outside of their models but this volatility is actually causing the inequality and causing the income mobility and causing the wealth distribution right and so i think the deep thought that we're having here is we if we try and this is what the fear of 
of the Gini coefficient is, is the fear of central planners is we need to damp these oscillations. Mm-hmm. No, the oscillations, what you, the farming case you just hear, any entrepreneur, you might make nothing for 10 years and then make a killing. And this mm-hmm. is that uneven outcome. This is optionality. Mm-hmm. This is the black swan or the white yes. swan, the, the positive black swan, right? Convexity. And if you take those, exactly, that's a much yes. better way to put it. If we take convexity out of the economy, now everyone's equal, but there's no mobility either. And, and here's, there's a great IRS statistic. So, you know, it, can, it can't be said that, <laughs> that we're using biased sources of statistics here. The exceptionally high rates of turnover of people at very high income labels reinforce this conclusion. Internal revenue service data show that half the people who earned over a million dollars a year at some time during the years from 1999 through 2007 did so just once in those nine years. Mm-hmm. And that's great because, look, if Bernie Sanders can become a millionaire, you can become a millionaire. That's the point. And he literally said that. Someone's like, hey, why are you a millionaire? He's like, well, you could write a book too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, right? So, so, I mean, this is the thing is we want the thing that central planners fear the most, which looks to them like chaos. But what we know is emergent complexity is the actual thing that gives us what they claim to want income redistribution. And if they take the noise out of the system and make it, you know, a perfect, as right. you say, the only place we're all going to be equal is in the grave or in poverty. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's almost a trick question, right? Where you, the thought experiment, if you take the volatility out of Bitcoin, I mean, the only actual way the volatility leaves Bitcoin is when it's fully monetized. Yeah, hyper Bitcoinized, right? Yes. Yeah, you can't actually legislate that outcome. Like, if you actually think through, okay, what if there was a politician that got it passed? Like, hey, we're going to take the price volatility out of Bitcoin. What would they do? It's like that would be some weird shit. I don't know what they would do. Um, tax people to engage in some buying and selling of the coin to try to manage to a price point. Like, it would be central planning nightmare. And it would destroy the economy and and it would cause, I don't know, hyperinflation. What we've seen this, we've talked about this in prior episodes, is that this is what happens when price fixing. This is one of the most egregious things that that authoritarian economies do. And it leads to massive shortages because there's no economic signal or information in there. And yeah, I just, I love that example. And, And that's why we have this saying that people get Bitcoin at the price that they deserve because, you know, if you can do, ultimately, the, the price should stabilize, assuming that we can get to some kind of global adoption. But yeah. on the way, it's going to be damn volatile. And that is what is driving the returns and driving the redistribution right. of the wealth. That's right. Yeah, it's price discovery, right? Which is the the purpose of markets. You want it to figure out. That's right. The market should be telling you what the relevant supply of this thing juxtaposed against the demands on it gives you this signal of its economic worth, if you will, if you try to interfere with that, it's it's like, you can't even call it un- unintended consequences at this point. We have learned that manipulating a price creates yeah. negative consequences, right? Shortages, surpluses, Extra whatever it may be, it, it, it messes things up. It decreases net human satisfaction. Um, so yeah, it, it just stands to reason that that's the kind of the core principle to this whole thing. It's like, don't interfere with the self-organization of markets just because it looks uneven to your particular mind right yes and this is a beautiful thing i, I think we we had shared a, a milton friedman clip on on instagram and th- he was talking to uh let's say an, a central planner a, a politician mm-hmm. who said 
you know, we, we are the only public school, we're the only school in America I know of that requires our students to learn a foreign language. And Friedman mm-hmm. says, why are you proud of that? You're, you are touting the fact that you have substituted your judgment for that of the individual, which, which was Mises' key point. There's no such thing as a planless or headless market. There's a market process which takes into account everyone's wants and needs, or there's the arbitrary central planner's desires, and there's no in-between. And what I love, I want to talk about this. I said we would get to this, you know, this idea. So there's a very popular political football, political idea, which is that the system is rigged by the wealthy. And I, I want to hit the soul just crushes this. He says, during the period from 1992 to 2014, for example, there were 4,584 people who were the top 400 income earners. Now watch this. It is a similar story as regards the 400 richest people in the world who had net losses of $19 billion in 2015. As of 2016, the number of billionaires in the world was slightly fewer than 2015, while the total wealth held by all the world's billionaires declined by $570 billion on net balance. Here's where he kills it. If the world's richest people had, in fact, rigged the system, surely they could have done better for themselves than that. <laughs> right? I mean, the, the whole narrative falls apart once you realize that there is no – these categories of wealthy and poor are not fixed. Right. It really does. Um the Milton Friedman thing where we have the forced, edu- forced education of foreign languages in schools. It reminds me of this silly meme I saw probably on Instagram too. Shows like an old guy kind of celebrating and he's like, you know, day 9,000 of not using sine, cosine, or tangent. And I'm not, not to speak against the education of mathematics, but there are these weird things that we like we force kids to learn that regardless yeah. of their utility in the real world, like we try to fit everyone into one template education wise. And I'm speaking Ooh. largely about public schooling here and it fails to uh, be curated for the individual aptitude or interest of the student. Right. And I, I would argue that good educational systems actually cater more to that individual the individual interests or proclivities of the kid rather than trying to squeeze them all into this one uh, homogenous bucket. And this is allowing for volatility and allowing for individual choice. When mm-hmm. Bi- when Bill Gates became obsessed with computers, he, he wasn't doing it for money. He was just personally interested in it. Mm-hmm. And the point that Friedman makes in that clip is that why do I have to specialize in a foreign language? Why can't I spend my finite time on, on mathematics, on music? And this is Sowell's point is that individuals know things that no central planner can ever know. They have intuition. They can develop their unique skills. And what is this whole book is about? There are these hidden factors for success. And it's a die roll. The universe, the market process, the world is unfolding over Mm -hmm. time. And the things that we do seemingly idiosyncratically, our personal interests actually lead to these skewed outcomes in our favor later on in life. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that these, you know, you have a bunch of seemingly independent skills and all of a sudden they converge together. Who know that mathematics would be useful as cryptography? Nobody knew this 200 years ago. Right. People were just pursuing their interests. It is now right. Satoshi wouldn't have been able to do his work had not Gauss and other people laid the foundations of number theory. And a central planner would have said, like, hang on, I noticed we've been doing this math for 100 years and nothing has come out of it. Why don't you stop? Yeah. And that's... That's not what it's about. And it's again, again, this fear that if we let free choice reign, I think we're very, we're afraid that chaos will ensue, but just the opposite is true is that when we take away free choice, we take away the individual, the ability of the individual to discriminate. There's that word in a Mm -hmm. sense of type one, type one, type one, a type one, 
1B, where they're actually using real world information, we've destroyed their ability to, uh, to open themselves up to convexity, yeah. right? Which is a really neat way of saying it, which I don't think it's been said like that before. Yeah, it's good, good judgment, right? We all want good judgment. But if you inhibit the ability for people to discriminate, then you can't discrimination and judgment. Again, these are just words, right? Discrimination has some negative connotation to it. Judgment has right. can have a good connotation. I guess it's going to have negative too, but obviously you need good judgment to exist in the world. And if you try to eliminate people's ability to discriminate between one thing and another, that doesn't, that creates an irrational society. Um, well, it destroys economic calculation. And this is why yeah. Mises says that economics is about fly. He's like, I'm not here. I'm not here talking about morals. I'm not telling you what's good and what's bad. I'm yeah. telling you what people are likely to do, given the fact that these are the, the determinants of their behavior. Yes. They're trying to remove uneasiness. Yes. They're tra- they prefer a leisure time, like all yeah. these really simple things. And, and so let's try to get us back there. And I, I was going to go into revealed preference, but I wanted to give you a chance. I think you had a point. Well, I just want to, we've probably brought this up before, but I think Hayek's essay, The Use of Knowledge in Society, really captures this. Yeah. Uh, You know, just destroys central planning. And just to, you know, we want people pursuing their own interests, right? That's where you get these phenomenal innovations. It's like when someone goes into the thing they're really into and they spend a lifetime doing it, not to say it always happens, but when you do get these giant, you know, Steve Jobs, apple kind of breakthroughs that's because that guy was maniacally pursuing his own interest for decades and the market was supporting his success so you prefer that we're going to have i guess one point in this book is like there's going to be unequal outcomes because that is the way of nature or you know the way of human nature the way of non-human nature etc we would prefer that the most productive people be the super rich be the ones on top Right. And so that seem that outcome seems to be supported by just letting freedom reign rather than trying to force the outcomes of freedom into some predetermined box or notion of what we want society to be. That just blows up in our face. I love this so much because the there's just two things. I'm going to talk about the fallacy of composition and I'm going to talk about something that Mises says. He's like, well, you know, the central planner looks at the economy and says, you know what we need? We need more entrepreneurs. Let's train them. And Mises says entrepreneurs cannot be trained. Right. Entrepreneurs cannot be trained because they proceed by uh, their own personal and idiosyncratic explorations. Mm-hmm. And nobody, they don't know if they're going to succeed and they're taking the level of risk and having a level of skin in the game that no central planner has. And you brought up Steve Jobs. When he was at Reed College as a student, he took a calligraphy class. And he's like, why, why am I taking this calligraphy class? And then the Mac has fonts. The reason that, you know, we have beautiful typography on the web and in the world, and the Mac has serif and sans serif and all these beautiful fonts is because Steve Jobs took a calligraphy class. There was no way that that could possibly be planned. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? 
So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, This is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, Day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, Just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Element. Element is a delicious electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. Element contains the ideal electrolyte ratio. It's got 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Element has no junk. It's got no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS at all. Element is perfectly suited for people that are on a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. And as someone that eats a very heavy meat diet and does a lot of intermittent fasting, I simply love this stuff. So go to drinkelement.com slash breedlove. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash breedlove and make sure to get a free sample pack with your first purchase. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. And the fallacy of the central planner here, and this really expresses this idea of volatility or trying to contain volatility and destroying the outcome in the process, Mm -hmm. Soul calls this the fallacy of composition, and it's absolutely brilliant. Mm. And he says, if you, a fallacy of composition occurs when we take things that work for individuals and try and apply them to the whole. And here again is this idea that we're not very precise in our language, that imprecision, that imprecision is where central planners hide. 
And what he says is, as an example, if one person stands up at a baseball game, that person can see better. Mm-hmm. But we can, the government now comes along and says, well, everybody should stand up. Well, guess what? The advantage of that one person standing up is now gone, and that's the fallacy of composition. Mm-hmm. Now watch this. In the world of education, let's say governments look at the statistics and say, you know what? People with educations learn a lot more money. Let's give everyone a college education. Do you, do you see the flaw in that? Now, the economic advantage, the economic yes. differentiation of having a college education is gone. Yes. So by trying to take the volatility out of the system, we take the convexity and the optionality mm-hmm. out of the system. And this is so fun for me because I've never actually thought of this stuff this way. And like this relationship between soul and complexity economics, between soul and Austrian mm-hmm. economics, and between uh, this concept of convexity, right? Which is, mm-hmm. you know, that's the good luck that we all want to have. And, and here's the beauty of convexity, both in the Sowellian and in the Talebian sense of the world. All you have to do, you can control your at-bats. You can't control your batting ratio, but you can control your at-bats. Mm-hmm. And this is why Scott Adams, who wrote a really interesting book, is like how to fail at almost everything and still succeed. Uh, and he said, look, every new skill you learn doubles your chances of success. And he's like, if the universe is a slot machine, you just need to go up and keep pulling the handle. And that's what entrepreneurs do. And guess what? No central planner knows ahead of time what's going to come up mm-hmm. uh, you know, from the slot machine and what factors of success are going to be required. So I think yeah. we've made a great case uh, for you know people, individuals being allowed to pursue their own interests, not harming anyone else, mm-hmm. and not being forced into these uh, state-inspired molds because we're going to have better economic outcomes. Mm. No, so so many great points there. I mean, yeah, entrepreneurs, they're inherently self-taught, right? They're autodidacts often, right? They're just trying to solve a problem by any means necessary. You can't give an entrepreneur a predetermined path to becoming a successful entrepreneur. That's a that's a contradiction in terms, basically, right? It just doesn't make yes. sense. And again, just through observation. Like trying to bottle of- lightning. Lightning yeah. happens, right? And Souls even talked about that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I just it reiterates a point we observe in nature, right? That growth itself is an inherently unstable process. You can't, you know, you can't yell or command your garden to grow faster or grow better. Like you have to let the variations of weather and night and day and sunshine and cloudiness sort of do their thing, right? You have to let the variation nurture the growth. Um. And, you know, I think this came to mind that it wasn't that many decades ago that in the same way we discuss climate change today, very seriously at the highest levels of, you know, needing these gigantic spending packages and huge uh, new regulatory frameworks to stave off climate disaster. What was it? 40, 50 years ago, we're talking about eugenics in the same way. That the entire yeah. world population would wow. drive itself into a wall or self-destruct if we didn't selectively determine who could reproduce, you know, what selectively um, selecting for the best, uh, what, what, what do we say? Attributes, I guess, is what eugenics was trying to do, like human attributes and trying to pro- reproduce more of, of those. Planners. Yes, in the eyes of central planners. That's, that's my point is that you can't do that because you don't know what you said earlier, what the criteria of success really will be. You don't know where the next Steve jobs will be born or what classes he will take, or, you know, you just can't plan it. It cannot be planned. And all that we can do is create these conditions for human freedom, 
such that you get as many pulls at that slot machine, right? As possible. Right. If you have as many free humans as possible, you have as many chances as possible for pulling a Steve Jobs and an Apple 2.0 by rough example. <laughs> and the, you know, this is what creates, we talked about earlier in the series, how, you know, China was once on top of the world, far ahead of Europe. And inadvertently cast themselves in the dark ages because they were so far ahead of the world by forbidding exploration. Yeah. And how then, remember this, it was said that there was no Scottish Lord who could write his own name. And then suddenly we get an explosion of <clears throat> Scottish philosophers and Scottish scientists. Mm -hmm. And what this means is that central planning actually harms the ability of groups who are in the lower quintile to actually rise to the oh, highest quintile yeah. because we don't know ahead of time what the characteristics are going to be. And I want to use that as kind of a bridge to revealed preference, which, which you had mentioned earlier. And uh, here's a great example of the difference between what people say and what they actually do, right? Real economic incentives. A survey of low-income people by Columbia University researchers showed that 59% regarding buying regarded buying goods on credit as a bad idea. Nevertheless, most of the families do use credit when buying major durables. Mm. Economists, therefore, tend to rely on revealed preference rather than verbal statements. That is, what people do reveals what their values are better than what mm -hmm. they say. <laughs> and he goes on to say, Statistics compiled from what people express verbally may be worse than useless if they lead to a belief that such numbers convey a reality that can be relied on for serious decision-making about social policies. And guess what? Let's take a classic example. Many of the studies which showed that the minimum wage does not harm the economy were based on survey data. Okay. <laughs> and a classic example, here's, we you know what the problem is here survivorship bias. If you survey, first of all, whenever you do an economic survey, one of the problems is not everyone is going to respond. Mm -hmm. So let's say I survey 100 companies, I get 50 responses back. And then uh, I ask, you know, will the minimum wage, uh, will it change your hiring plan? Or will it change uh, how many people you employ or how long you employ them? And they say no. Well, a year later, now that the minimum wage has put low income businesses out of business, I can survey people and only the surviving businesses who tend to be very expensive businesses that charge more are they're going to say, well, the minimum wage didn't affect this at all based on the survey respondents. And what Sol says is that you can conclude that no soldier was fatally wounded in World War II with this methodology, right? You can, mm -hmm. you can you know, survey all the people mm -hmm. who were in World War II. That's because that's survivorship bias. Yeah. And so, you know, this is here again is just statistics. First of all, this is an era of commission is that we should never, ever rely on survey data. And as soon as we see survey data in, in any kind of economic claim, we should instantly discount that. And it's frankly very sad that this is used for something as important as the minimum wage. And the argument is made that this isn't going to harm the economy, but literally based on survey data and not on empirical data, number one. And number two, raising the minimum wage actually stops people from the lower income strata from getting the experience they need from their first job so they can go to the higher economics strata. Yes. Crazy. That's a great, uh, great point. On the survivorship bias, stop me if I've used this one before. I can't remember if this is in our conversation or another. Um, the warplanes that were returning back and um, someone initially observed that, oh, they all had bullet holes in one area. So let's reinforce that one area of the plane before someone more intelligent stepped in and said, wait a minute, <laughs> we need to think through terms of su survivorship bias. Whatever planes are returning survived. So whatever bullet holes we see in the planes now, we need to reinforce the places where we don't see the bullet holes because those were the vulnerable vulnerable points that were struck by bullets uh, that, that destroyed the planes that did not return. So there's this weird 
it's almost like a cognitive optical illusion that you can get you can get tripped up on very easily um but you have to take into account the non-survivors basically yeah and that's i mean that's i think we can i'd like to show some compassion for central planners this is why central planning is really hard because thinking is hard and the universe is a very complicated place mm -hmm. and the observations that you have may not deduce or may not infer what you think that they infer so i, I love that example of survivorship bias and mm -hmm. i think it's it's very often why the results of central plan are the opposite of what are intended because the mm -hmm. logic that was used is not in congruence with the real world number one and because there's going to be all these unforeseen side effects yeah yeah it really is um yeah intentionality right you it's easy to to demonize the central planner as having some intentionality for controlling the world or being evil or whatever it may be but not necessarily so right as we described much earlier you can get into this kind of self-deceptive pattern when you have bad terms bad categories bad which all lead to bad thinking um you can definitely you can have the that's why they're called unintended consequences right you can have very negative consequences without necessarily having uh negative intentionality or or nefariousness of any kind I want to run with that bad terms, bad thinking, because I think that's a great informal way to summarize what we're talking about. The, the bad terms are errors of commission, errors of omission. And then the bad thinking is that, hey, we have this vision of the anointed, this way that we think the world should be that is not in accord with reality. Mm -hmm. And one of the very controversial economic numbers that we have seen, I don't know, in the past two decades is the, the disparity between male and female incomes. And Sol's got a great, he's like, well, we need to look a little bit closer and we're going to see Simpson's paradox at work. He says, similarly, male faculty members in general had higher incomes than female faculty members in general. Suspicious, but now look closely. But among similarly qualified faculty, women who never married earn higher incomes than men who never married. What does that mean? There were other complex factors at play. First of all, what is the preferences like men and women aren't choosing, let's say, science, technology, engineering, medicine with equal frequency, just whether you like it or not. And that's true even in the most egalitarian societies, even in Scandinavia. The dimorphism or the difference between the choices goes up. That's point number one. And point number two, because they have different life experiences, and we should not be ashamed. We should be proud that women bear children. Mm -hmm. They may spend less time in the workforce, have less time to build up their skills. This is a great thing. This is the specialization, yes. the division of labor. But again, a very naive statistic is saying, like, wait a minute, why are the men being paid more than the women? Well, it turns out it has nothing to do with gender. And if you take uh, marriage and children out of the equation, women get paid more than men. Right. I mean, this is awesome. This is so yeah. cool. Like it, and it means, you know, the sad thing and why Marxists don't like these conclusions is that it means we don't live in a dastardly evil society mm. dominated by, by evil people who are rigging the system. And the problem, the reason people fear that conclusion is it means that they're responsible for themselves and they actually yeah. can. Right. There are a lot of people who are most intimidated by the idea that they can control their own destiny to some extent. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. With, with great power comes great responsibility. And for all of its flaws, at least in the West, the current iteration of society we have today is um, – more empowering of individual autonomy than anything we've ever had before, right? Obviously, we could still make progress, but um, things are better now than they've ever been. I also learned this recently, like just, we really need to appreciate, especially now, the fundamental differences between men and women, right? And appreciate mm. them for what they are. When 
it seems like the cultural sickness in the world is doing everything it can to remove all differences between men and women. That's right. I learned this recently that blew my mind that men have daily hormonal cycles. So we wake up, testosterone's highest in the morning, right? Uh, morning wood, hello guys, like that's where it comes from. <laughs> and yeah. then we we taper throughout the day, right? Like testosterone goes down. We have a, a daily, a 24-hour solar hormonal cycle. Well, guess what women mm. have? It's not solar. It, we know it, right? It, it's it's lunar. It's menstrual. They have a- so cool. So the first quarter of the month, women are in like one- quadrant of their brain they're maybe feeling extra and i don't know the specifics here maybe they're extra assertive and intelligent for a week then maybe they're more creative maybe they're more laid back and nurturing another week and like they're going through a 28 day cycle whereas men are going through a single day cycle so we like men are obviously much better fit to the traditional work week right where we show up and do the same thing every day 40 hours a week Mm. week in week out whereas maybe women aren't exactly biologically adapted for that, you know, that it's different. So we need to appreciate these differences rather than again, yes. trying to force everyone into one cookie cutter solution. And look how ironic this is and painfully ironic. You're saying we need to appreciate differences. I agree wholeheartedly and we're being opposed by the people under a diversity and inclusion banner. Like, wait a minute, are we celebrating diversity or not? Right? No, that's actually not what they're celebrating. They're actually asking for the elimination of diversity and the substitution of diversity with their own arbitrary opinions of what should, of how things should look, right? Which are not subject to the market process, not subject to logic, not subject to nature. Mm. And uh, which actually destroy the, the mobility of the individual and you know this mm-hmm. you know whatever hormonal differences drive men and women another way of looking at that is hunting versus gathering like there's mm-hmm. a certain set of skills you need like hunting you just you go you do one thing yes. gathering is like maybe i've got a child in one arm and i'm collecting some berries right and then i'm cooking some potatoes like you know they're they're so those are very different skill sets and we should we should absolutely embrace those and this was hayek's point in the fatal conceit is that we come along with our rational minds and say well this is actually what equality looks like completely arbitrarily by the mm-hmm. way Mm-hmm. without actually understanding what the evolutionary or what the non-rational, the intuitive, the evolutionary processes that contributed to, to the world look like. And without knowing that, we're shooting arrows in the dark. Uh, one, I want to throw in here a an Ember statistic. So again, mm-hmm. what I love about Sol is that he goes to the kind of most objective mainstream economic sources that you can imagine. And what he says, this is now getting back to this topic of the minimum wage, he says the amount of labor demanded can be measured either by the number of workers employed or by the number of hours they work or both. A study published by Enver measured employment by hours of work, as well as the number of workers employed and included that, quote, the minimum wage ordinance lowered low wage employees earnings by an average of $125 per month in 2016. Mm. Hold up. So here, remember, we looked at this, this difference between household income and individual income. Now watch this. So when you raise the minimum wage to people's nominal, does their hourly rate go up? Yes. But guess what happens? Their income went down. Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, this is just an example of here where we're using the wrong measure. We're trying to measure with the wrong metric and saying like, oh, like, let's just, and, and you know, this is a funny thing, you know, and I think this is, you know, making fun of central bankers. Like, instead of sending money to foreign countries, why don't we just tell them to raise their minimum wage? Because right, economics right. doesn't work that way. <laughs> like, well, we should just say, like, we don't, oh, let's just print more pieces of paper, right? Then yeah. they make more. That's unfortunately not how things actually work. 
That's a great point, man. That is so that's that's as good of a point as the signs that were being picketed shortly after the COVID um quantitative easing episode where if they can just print money, then why do we pay taxes? Yeah. Right. It's sort of I love that same opinion. It highlights this like irreconcilable faultiness in in the assumptions, right? Like you can't obviously they can't both be true. You can't print money to actually increase wealth in the world, but still need to be able to tax people because then you would just, why don't we just print all the money we need? If there's any shortage of money, just print all the money we need. You don't need to send money to other countries. Let them print their own money. We'll print our own money. And the whole thing would just be great. Right. But obviously that's total bullshit. (laughs) Increasing the number of sheets, you know, green tickets of paper we call dollars does not create any new factories, equipment, knowledge, capital, et cetera. Um, yeah, really absurd, I think. Well, you know, and it, it shows a lot of these things that this is, again, speaking to complexity, these things that we think are linear and one-to-one relationships are absolutely not. And one mm-hmm. of the examples which Sol gives in this chapter is that the, the term tax cuts for the rich is doubly fallacious. First mm-hmm. of all, because the rich is not a fixed quantity. Mm-hmm. Second of all, this is the beauty is that the government cannot set tax revenue. They have no power to do this. They right. can only set the tax rate. And right. what Laffer showed is, you can have cases where the tax rate goes up, but the tax revenue goes down, or mm-hmm. cases where the tax rate goes down and the tax revenue goes up. Yeah. Why? Because human behavior is nonlinear. And just to explain that in the non-voodoo yes. economics way, one of the reasons is that when we lower the tax rate, a lot of money that's been expatriated is just then repatriated, and then yeah. they you know pay tax. Like if Apple is sitting on whatever the number is, $100 billion, $10 billion in cash, and the tax rate is some absurd amount. Well, it's going to stay in foreign banks. Yes. And it's going to continue to be tax sheltered. And this has yes. happened throughout history, by the way, where the direction of the tax rate and the tax revenue moved in opposite directions. Yes. This is a re- mean, and, 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 what you said way earlier, right? People follow incentives, not laws. So if there's an incentive, right, in the form of a lower tax rate to bring those dollars back into a jurisdiction, that's right. People are going to follow that. Um, and the Laffer curve's a great example of because it's almost I when I studied it in the past, it was almost always the case, right? Higher tax rates lead to lower tax revenue and vice versa. And it I mean, I guess if you understand what taxation is, that it's just theft, that also makes sense, right? You lower the theft rates, well, people are a little bit more tolerant of it. But if you increase the theft rates, uh, people are are more resistant to it. You're also destroying less capital, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, that's Mises' whole point is that standard of living increases, increases in the wage, technological improvements. They all come from capital accumulation. Mm-hmm. Taxation is capital dispersion. Like yeah. the individuals have to be able to save. Again, what's a classic example? You know, Elon Musk is a teenager. I think the woman he married twice. She's like, he. I went on a date with him. He was like. I don't know, a teen. And all he was talking about was electric cars and rockets, electric cars and rockets, right? <laughs> he was talking about it back then. And so uh, these kind of uneven outcomes that occur are what let you make these proper investments in the future. Mm-hmm. And so what does that mean? These uneven outcomes, once again, are very good for capital accumulation, which is where innovation comes from. Mm-hmm. Innovation is not going to come from a central planner because they're only looking at averages and things that were already successful in the past. This is why entrepreneurs right. can't be trained because they're looking forward into the future. They're yes. creating and selling you things that you didn't know you needed. Right. And I want to come back to that, but this is what's really crazy is uh, that I want to 
really hammer the the minimum wage from an empirical standpoint mm-hmm. and, and say internationally unemployment rates have been markedly lower in times and places where neither governments nor labor unions set most wage rates. Most modern na- most modern nations have had minimum wage laws, but the few that have not have tended to have strikingly hello lower unemployment rates. Mm-hmm. These would include Switzerland and Singapore today and Hong Kong under British rule prior to 90 prior to the 97 return of Hong Kong and China. So here's another example where the rhetoric is make people richer, raise the minimum wage. But the actual reality is that you're unemploying people. Why? This is straight soul. The real minimum wage is zero. Yes. And it doesn't matter what your intention is. And it doesn't right. matter uh, what right. you wanted to do when you raise the minimum wage. The actual incentive structure you're putting in place is to disemploy people or, or to yes. put people out of a job or have them work less hours. And I have to remind that this happened, actually happened to the Bernie Sanders campaign. It turns out that they weren't paying their I've, – I've said this – I've given this anecdote before, but it bears repeating. Mm. The Bernie Sanders campaign was called out because they weren't paying their staffers minimum wage. So mm. they're like, ooh, we, let's pay our staffers minimum wage. And then they did, and they cut hours. Right. <laughs> so here's a classic example where you can have as much of a minimum wage as you want. You'll destroy – it was just shown by right. – was Enver statistics showing that income actually goes down and, and unemployment actually goes up. Right. So if we use the wrong categories in the wrong language, we get the wrong results. What did you say? Bad terms, bad thinking or something like yeah, that? Bad, bad thinking, terms, bad, results. bad yeah. thinking. Yeah. And that case of minimum wage actually leading to the cutting of hours, that's an empirical support point for Mises' much older theoretical uh, theory, I guess, of institutional unemployment itself, right? If you want to eliminate institutional unemployment, which I think Mises defined as any unemployment resulting from interference, you have to actually remove all the interference and let the labor market clear where supply and demand intersect, right? There can be no minimum wage or no maximum wage for that matter. You have to let the supply of labor hours Mm. clear based on the demand for those labor hours, whatever that price is, just like any other market. So it's, you know, I don't know how much, you know, those are the only two forms of knowledge we have, right? Is this, this the theory that we're building rigorously in, in true economics, but then you get these empirical proof points of the Bernie Sanders campaign or whatever it may be, where you actually increase minimum wage and you have to cut hours. Like that's, that's, yeah, that's very mad, understandable people. within that explanatory framework that Mises laid out for us. So it's like, yep. it's, this is where I feel like I mean, maybe we're just in this rabbit hole, but like you're banging your head into this wall repeatedly. And like, how many times are we going to do this as human beings before we just realize, hey, the theoretical, uh, the things that Mises deduced theoretically that have now been supported empirically, we really should try and construct our systems based on this knowledge that we've gained rather than engaging this political process of arguing what a minimum wage should be, how much it should be, how much it's going to help people. All the while, we know full well that minimum wages create unemployment. It is a price floor that's creating unemployment. You cannot fix unemployment with the thing that creates it. So, I I mean, to say that is so easy, but then to like have the potency of that idea actually get into people's mind is, is a whole nother matter. Well, that's the the task that, that Mises and Sol asked us to take up. It's like, hey, folks, stop mm-hmm. and think. And just an empirical point to drive what we said home. In the United States, the last administration with no national minimum wage law at any time was the Coolidge administration in the 20s. During mm. President Coolidge's last four years in office, the annual unemployment rate ranged from a high of 4.2% to a low of 1.8%. Mm. 
right? Hmm. In addition to Switzerland, in addition to Singapore. And what you just explained, your frustration, Robert, demonstrates the ratchet of statism, which is this. Hmm. There is what we perceive to be a, a problem. We intervene. We create externalities or more problems. And now we have more excuses to intervene again. Yes. And this is a terrifying property of yes. states and cancers that they only grow in one direction. Right. They only tend to get bigger. And, and Milton Friedman explains this. He's like, government agencies only get bigger over time because they never have to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. And what happens is when an agency fails, what they claim is we were underfunded. Yes. And then it's literally the opposite of the process that drives the market. We say, hey, these businesses that failed, just give them more money. Mm-hmm. And guess what you're doing in that case? And, and you know, this, this touches on even deep things like what our energy sources are. Mm-hmm. First of all, I'm deeply sympathetic to people who live and work in coal country. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of reasons why the, the green narrative uh, has unnecessarily demonized coal. But the point I want to make it is when we go and say, hey, whatever this industry is, it doesn't have to be coal. It could literally be clean energy. doesn't matter. It could be windmills. When we say we're going to go subsidize this, you're taking capital away, A, from yes. an alternative allocation. And I like to liken it to you're keeping dinosaurs on life support. And mm-hmm. instead of those workers being allocated to a more efficient part of the economy, maybe they learn how to code, maybe they automate, maybe they think about robotics, maybe they play with chat GPT. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I'm not supposed to know. We essentially keep them in an unproductive area of the economy. So what we end up doing is incentivizing inefficiency, yes. and we get exactly what we would expect, inefficiency. Yes. No, that man, it's such a another one of those points that we can't emphasize or reiterate enough Again, bad terms, bad thinking. Subsidies are derivatives of theft, right? There's no such thing as a when we say taxpayer subsidized, that means the state has stolen from taxpayers and they're allocating to this business that's not that's right. It would not exist absent the theft, right? Like there's not sufficient demand or it's not being done profitably enough for the market to bear that thing into existence. It can yes. only exist with the intervention. And this is back to, I mean, again, Henry Hazlitt's economics in one lesson. Yes. The break, the window, right? It's the broken That's window exactly fallacy, right. just at a different scale. And the, the final culmination of that are zombie companies, right? These companies that just live off of taxpayers' subsidies yes. and produce no actual satisfaction of human wants in any profitable way whatsoever. Um and I, I guess that's Milton Friedman, right? What, wasn't he the one that said there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government solution? Yes, it was. Yes, it so was. It is a very pernicious trap. The way you exactly the way you described it that there's a problem, we intervene, we create, we increase the problem set, and that's given us more excuses or more points to intervene again. And it it's a it's a vicious cycle. And the conservative point of view is the reason you get this proliferation or explosion of problems is because you're intervening in a complex system with millions of variables, millions of equilibria, billions of potential stable points, and a totally uncertain future. What is the key point of Austrian economics is that we're always dealing with uncertainty. Yes. And so what we're it's almost like we're getting a lesson in complexity mm-hmm. in how poorly central planning does. And that is the fundamental difference between, I think, the, the statist mindset and the libertarian mindset is that complex systems have a way of reaching their own equilibrium. In other words, not all order has to actually be designed. Mm. And this is ultimately the idea that, that we're socializing. And I'd love to uh, do a gear shift now and wrap up. I think we've yeah. got a little bit more time to get to the end of the chapter. 
And uh, what I would love to do is, is talk about Piketty. So the French author, I think everybody's familiar with him. He, right. uh, he wrote Capital in the 21st Century. And so I'm going to read uh, a, a little excerpt here. So this is first Steven Pinker from Harvard on Piketty. Thomas Piketty, whose 2014 bestseller, Capital in the 21st Century, became a talisman in the uproar over inequality. He wrote, the poor half of the population are as poor today as they were in the past, with barely 5% of total wealth in 2010, just as in 1910. But total wealth today is vastly greater than it was in 1910. So if the poorer half own the same proportion, they are far richer, not quote unquote as poor. Hopefully people can see the flaw in that thinking. It's not the same people. And we're again emphasizing the fate of abstract categories over flesh and blood human beings. And soul takes us apart. In addition to speaking of percentages as if they represented a given amount of income or wealth over the course of a century, Professor Piketty also made such assertions as that in income, the upper decile is truly a world unto itself. When Piketty said that the top 1% set atop the hierarchy and structure of inequality, watch this, soul crushes it. He again verbally transformed a changing mix of people in a particular income brackets into a fixed structure rather than a fluid process in which most Americans do not remain in the same quintile from one decade to the next. And that is the fundamental tension between statism and libertarianism. It's structure versus process. Yes. The market is not a place or a thing, says Mises. The market is a process. And so are we willing to embrace this process? Or are we going to keep hampering it with very, although they may seem intellectually brilliant, mm. poorly conceived and incomplete ideas, fixed structures, which work only on paper and, mm. and in fact produce no good outcomes for, for flesh and blood human beings. And I love this one so much. And it's quite to the heart of the matter. I look, like how you put central planning is kind of a lesson in complexity, right? Which, we need to be humble in the face of complexity. I, I would say that's the one thing central planning has taught wow. us, right? We keep, here's the plan. And then what's the old saying? If you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans, especially <laughs> yeah. your central plan, I suppose. But this idea that we, what, how did Sol put this? Piketty said that the top 1% sit atop the hierarchy and structure of inequality. He again verbally transformed a changing mix of people in particular income brackets, which is the reality, right? This complex, fluid, changing reality, he converts that into a fixed static structure. And he's representing it as a uh, an indivisible group, right? And so you yes. get this you just disconnect from reality, right? It's it's a it's a false veneer. And I want like I think about this a lot, and maybe this is maybe this is why it's so difficult to talk about, because it seems to be a little bit inherent to the structure of language itself, right? That we use these words as points of consensus to try and grapple with a complex reality. And the utility of that word is the consensus you and I have on the meaning of the word, right? When I say the word word, I have a definition that's hopefully mostly aligned to your definition and we can engage in dialogue, but it's very easy to mistake that little static structure we call the word. If you get too far into maybe abstraction or thinking, you start to mistake the language for the reality, right? The reality is this fluid, complex, changing thing all the time. We're just trying to grab onto it with our language, like these little static yes. structures. It's just a mapping tool of some kind. And so it seems like maybe we get 
we confuse it, right? We we confuse the map for the territory, something like that. And at the at the extreme ends, you get central planning and all this self deception we've been describing. I mean, you just dropped a bomb, and it's one that I love. And this is the difference between proof of work and proof of stake. Mm. Proof of work has a real connection to the real world. It's physically tied to the cost of electricity, the complexity, the, the difficulty index, the complexity mm-hmm. of performing entrepreneurship. And Vitalik is famous for coming around and saying like, well, the fees shouldn't be this. And, and this is a great example of a central planner. And then, mm-hmm. you know, Ethereum gas fees went through the roof. Yeah. He's still t- touting the same narrative. And he literally said, he's like, look, we know that the world of economics, the laws of economics are not what we want. And we'll use phrases like inequality. And he's like, we're going to make the internet of money different. He's trying to divorce himself from physical reality. He admitted that. He's like, hey, mm-hmm. these are cartoon physics, so to speak, that mm-hmm. we tried, that we're indulging in with proof of stake. And again, in trying to design a world that is more equal, they may get exactly the opposite because proof of stake, as we know, is, is a rich get richer scheme. Mm-hmm. The, the other, the bomb that you dropped there uh, was, uh, can, can you play back the, the very end part of your thought? Yes, it was about the precision of language. So this is, you know, really why I bring up Marxism time and again. If you remember Hayek and Mises' critique of Marx, he says that he very perniciously uses the word society in three full-blown, different, distinct definitions simultaneously. And mm. I want to call attention to the sleight of hand that he performs. Mm. What, for anything good that the state does, excuse me, for anything good that the collective does, he calls that uh, something like society and we. Mm -hmm. Anything bad that it does, he calls the state. Mm -hmm. And so, see, this is, so, but it's this, well, it's not even the same entity. Much like when we say we owe it to ourselves, we're actually saying, well, the young generation needs to pay through the taxes of inflation, needs to pay off the prior generations. So it's this imprecision about categories that soul is attacking and, you know, strangely, for all of its supposed academic rigor, mm-hmm. capital of the 21st century, if I recall correctly, is just a stapling together a bunch of graduate papers, is mm-hmm. redisguised Marxism, which creates the same error of pretending that, uh, you know, it's, as Sol says, mm-hmm. Piketty, quote, naively assumes that it's the same people getting richer. It's not. Yeah. He used you know, people between 1910 and 2010 as if they're the same people they're not. Also, during that period, even the people in their lifetimes and in their generations were constantly changing categories. And he used this intellectual sleight of hand to draw and to to rabble rouse and to draw economic conclusions and frankly to influence central planners on a fallacy. Right. Yeah, man, it oh, it is <laughs> it's weird because you get in this deep into it and you start to see it in a new way, but At the same time, I see the extreme challenge of trying to, there's a proof of work necessary to get to this level of understanding. It is very difficult to transform that understanding into something that's readily communicable, let's say. Yeah. Um, Mm. And so, so language is like this, my current iteration of this understanding. It's like a useful yet somewhat static map or mapping tool we're using to deal with this fluid, complex territory of reality. Yes. And this is where Austrian economics is fundamentally important and different because like the axioms underpinning Austrian economics, that's as close as we can get to reality in some ways or the reality of human action, at least, because it's rooted in incontrovertible language. Yes. Such as man must act, right? There's no way to refute that without engaging in an action. 
right? You, when you understand that properly, like man must act, man uses uh, means purposefully to pursue ends, let's say, to try and argue yeah. against the axiom, the, the, the axiom of action, man must act, you yourself have to engage in the purposeful pursuit of ends of refuting the argument with the means of language. So it's like to try and refute man must act, you yourself must act. Therefore, it's like incontrovertible. And so with those like strong pillars, right, we can deduce these theorems that are actually useful in the world of economics versus the Keynesian approach, which is much more like yes. all the fallacies we've laid out today. You just crushed the economic calculation problem. And I think we can probably go out with that and maybe a few a few quotes on, on the Laffer curve and this phenomenon that you can raise tax rates and lower tax revenue and vice versa. But you just explained the difference between a capitalist and a socialist economy. And the capitalist economy relies on hard numbers, objective values for prices mm -hmm. and exchange ratios. Mm -hmm. And the socialist economy relies on soft words. This mm -hmm. is exactly what Mises said. The reason the socialist republic cannot economically calculate is because it's only an internal transfer of goods. You just, add, right. you know, it's a bunch of bureaucracies fighting with each other about which resources should go where, but right. they're never forced to contend with the objective reality of price. Mm -hmm. And this is what we showed is that the thing, the, the actual magic that the market process accomplished, it, it, it changes subjective ordinals like, oh, like, you know, I want more blueberries than beef, or I'd rather go to Aruba than go to the Caribbean or whatever. It changes subjective ordinals that the individual has into objective cardinals that can be exchanged at scale. Right. And that is the real difference. And what you're saying here, I, I want to talk about Bitcoin again, in that the economics itself has been extraordinarily imprecise because it has relied on language. The Austrians mm. tried to formalize that and like, hey, let's be a mm. lot more logical. Let's be crisper with our definitions. They mm. showed where the Marxists, for instance, where Marx was imprecise with his language. But the thing you can't argue with is 21 million. Mm -hmm. And so we're that's what we're creating. We're shifting the burden from a conversation, which was about a bunch of and what Sowell shows is that being a number is not enough because you can always tamper with the denominator. You can always tamper mm. with the definition. And so this is another way of thinking is that, you know, isn't it amazing how 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 many languages we have in the world? Well over 100 distinct mm -hmm. languages. And yet we can all exchange because there are exchange ratios for the currencies. Yeah. And so we are doing something, the market is achieving something, and individual choice is achieving something that is objective and measurable. And without these objectives, we're Tower of Babel economically. All mm -hmm. we can do is just internally transfer goods, and the tower tips over and falls over because, as you just pointed out, we're all using slightly different definitions. Yes. And you know, even the supply of gold is like okay, like we have a very hard, high stock to flow with gold and but you know, we might mine this much this year, the miners mm -hmm. might sit on that much supply, but 21 million, brother. Can't argue with it. You know, think about it is and, and right and you know, if we can get to I think the idea at the very least is that there's more an objective economic barometer uh, that we yes. can use that we can all look at. Yeah. And it's not subject. This is important to the whims of any particular individual yes. it cannot be captured by an individual. Like look at the federal reserve. Like nobody actually knows what they're doing. Like, like, okay, let's keep raising interest rates. And you know, yeah. you have like a Jeremy Siegel, I think Wharton professor. He's like, we're, we're positive in every maturity, like uh, of, of notes is like, right. what metric are they actually trying to drive other than right. destroying the stock market? I realize it's going up today. But anyway, um, if we could, uh, two or three more quotes to finish, but I want to give you a chance to jump in there. And uh, I just want to reiterate something you just said, or maybe say in a slightly different way, that 
maybe ties this whole thing together is it that's that's it right 21 million is an absolute denominator it's absolute like it doesn't change you can't change it even if you want to change it mm. and and as we've we've explored the importance of having a constant denominator for all forms of yes. rationality you know communication mm. through language communication of exchange ratios through pricing you need a strong constant denominator that is the core value prop of bitcoin and in when when Satoshi created Bitcoin in two thousand and eight, that was was it was a chance on the verge of another bailout for the banks. Yeah, he was sick of fiat. He's like, he, well, you know, and God knows if he's alive, but uh, that that was his greatness of twenty one million people's like, you know, let's shift the debate somewhere else. Like, and mm -hmm. you can change my twenty one million, but you're going to hard fork and you're going to be out of my universe. Uh, can we create a, a, a common denominator, uh, a common language? That's it. Programming yeah. is more precise. Code is more precise than language, right? Yeah. And and he saw that. And SAFE and others have said, you know, could this be the first constant in economics, right? Because this is a big part of, yeah. of Austrianism is like, there's no constants. Like the exchange yeah. races are changing. The efficiency that you use to extract the mineral from the earth is changing. The process is changing. The yes. demand is changing. And I, I love this um, because, you know, we're again at this, this disconnect uh, between, and Seoul is going to end us. We're going to end this chapter on the concept of laughter curve, which is again, that the, the only thing the government can influence is the tax rate. Mm -hmm. They can't influence revenue. And uh, watch this. In terms of this, in bold, in terms of words on paper, the official tax rate on the highest incomes was cut from 73% to 24% in the 1920s. But in terms of events in the real world, the tax rate actually paid on staggering sums of money, previously untouchable in tax shelters, rose from 0% to 24%. This produced huge increases in tax revenues received from high income people, both absolutely and as a percentage of all income taxes collected. And what is the contradistinction here? Words on paper, mm -hmm. events in the real world. Mm -hmm. I think he just destroyed fiat. And you know what, Robert, this disconnection between reality and uh, so actual physical measurable things like quantities of gold and talk is exactly how central banking arose. Mm -hmm. Because they said, well, don't, we've got your, your gold on deposit. Don't worry. And then they said, uh, you can just come to us and get the gold. Okay, well and good. We're just a gold storage facility. And then they said, hang on, we're going to give you a piece of paper. Gold is heavy. It's too heavy. Someone can steal it. Let's give you a piece of paper. And they said, you know what? Not everybody needs their gold the same at the same time. Let's just make way more pieces of paper than there are actual physical gold in the bank. Mm -hmm. So this is it. I mean, this is a really beautiful thing is that the way of looking at central banking is castles in the air. It's mm -hmm. a bunch of words on paper, mm -hmm. which again, in Sowell's words, has no impact whatsoever on events in the real world. Worse yet, the things that they think they're going to happen in their models may turn out just the opposite. How scary is that? Often, if not always, right? The I forget who said this to me that you could define most legislation by the opposite of what its stated intention is, right? Like as you said earlier about yes. the Patriot Act, we should really call that the Despot Act. I think is maybe what you said. <laughs> That's yeah. how how more opposite can you be? Um, Anyways, I've kept you longer than I said I would. This has been a brilliant conversation. Soul really is mind-blowing. Um, so thank you again for introducing me to him. And I guess we'll pick this up on Chapter 5. Yes, and a cliffhanger for the next episode. So we've just gone through the world of numbers. The next chapter, if I remember, is the world of words. Yes. So it's entirely possible that Thomas Soul is ahead of us in thought process. And I really want to thank you for helping bring to the forefront the relationship between language and central planning mm. and the precision and objectivity that's needed for an economy to grow 
And Sowell's point really is if you aren't using words properly and you're not thinking and you're committing errors uh, either by commission or omission, you're not going to see correctly economically and we're going to have very poor outcomes in society. So what you said, you had this burning moment where you're like, how do we implant this idea in people's heads? Mm. And that's literally what Sol and Mises have been trying to do for over a century to give us a little bit of economics. It's not about memorizing facts. It's about mm. knowing economic principles like incentives yes. and being able to x-ray the headline and be like, is it true? Is it actually yes. in true that inequality is increasing? Is inequality actually what we're fighting or is it about standard of, of living? And is inequality actually a bad thing or is it actually the driver of equality and the driver of income mobility? Mm. Well said. We'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you.